0: Good morning, good morning, citizens. My name is Barnabas, and I am glad to be here this morning. Um, I will confess to you that I am a little bit nervous, one, because I'm out of practice of being in front of a whole bunch of people. But really, number two, it's because today's passage that I've been entrusted to open up to you all is 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 one that is unavoidably political. So when I say political, I don't mean I'm going to tell you to vote for a certain candidate that would be illegal or a certain party, but rather political, and it's fitting for this church, citizens in that it's about how we live our communal life together, how we share, how we move resources between us. And this passage that we'll be in today, Mark 12, um, it's political. So uh, I've titled the sermon simply Allegiance. And it doesn't fail to escape me that um, as we sit here and as I preach to you the word of God that directly talks about Caesar, the empire, and money, that in Rome, 20 of the most powerful nations are gathered to talk about our world, or that later today, the UN is gathering to talk about climate change for the next week. I think that the word of God has a lot to say in the midst of the things that we together in LA and in this world face. So without further ado, let me pray for us. God, you are God over all the earth in whom every family finds their name and to whom every king, president, prime minister bends their knee Your word is good and your love for the world is our life. So teach us today what it means to have pledged our allegiance to you and what that might mean for how we should live in these days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before I read our text for this morning, I wanna catch you up to where we are in the book of Mark. Since you all were gathered together last week, two really significant things have happened in this story so far, before the scripture that we'll look at today. So first, Jesus has finally entered the capital of Jewish life, Jerusalem, what we often call the triumphal entry. And second, he goes straight to the center of the sacred city, the temple. Now oftentimes when we think of the triumphal entry, we have images in our mind of our kids waving palm branches and chanting cutely. And while that's cute, I want to tweak that image for us so that we can see what's happening a bit better. You see, in the scriptures, as they wave branches and they put down their robes, they're actually singing the 118th Psalm. It's a little small. And that Psalm is about the Gentile nations that surround Israel who are looking to destroy her. It says, They surrounded me, but in the name of Yahweh I will destroy them. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Yahweh's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and proclaim what Yahweh has done. This is the day that the Lord has made. God, save us. Hosanna, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, what's happening at the triumphal entry is the culmination of 900 years of waiting. Imagine that for 900 years your people have been exiled, enslaved, subjugated, raped, killed, ruled, and occupied by foreign foreign powers and divided by foreign kings. The best of our culture extracted, erased, appropriated. Your names changed, languages broken, being forced to live on a foreign land and then being a stranger even in the land that you belong to. You can tell that I think that Asian Americans can uniquely understand the scriptural context in front of us. These Jews here, as they welcome in the Messiah, crying out, Hosanna, save us, God, please. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. It's really remarkable because they had faith, faith that had endured for 900 years that God would still keep God's promises that were made to their forefathers, that there would be a final king who would rule, whom mercy would flow from, abundance, life, safety, and prosperity, to the land, to them, and even to their surrounding enemies. And Jesus, the rightful heir of David, after this triumphal entry, goes straight into the temple, God's house, and he starts to throw things. If this were today, I think Jesus would have definitely been sued for trespassing at least and property damage. He makes a whip out of cords, he flips over tables, he disrupts worship and drives the money changers out of the courts and then launches into a zealous protest. This is a den of robbers. is actually doing what the people would have hoped. They had heard of the rumors of this Messiah, of his power to heal and to cast out demons, about how he had fed thousands in the wilderness like, like God had before. Finally, justice was coming. Finally, someone with power was going to deliver them like Moses had. Finally, someone had the power to drain the swamp And defeat Israel's enemies. This was the day that the Lord had made. However, if you're a leader of the people at this time, responsible for their generational life, you might be getting really concerned. Sure, if you're a Herodian, you might be worried about losing power. Remember that Herod had tried to kill Jesus when he was two because there was a Messiah that might take power from him? But for the rest of the elders and leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, they would have been concerned that this was just another self-proclaimed Messiah that was just stirring the crowd into a frenzy again, taking advantage of their hope and their longing. They had seen it time and time before. So to get into this passage today, I want you to take a moment to try imagining this scene with me. We're, just, we're going to use our imaginations. Imagine with me that you're at an ancient Jewish wine bar. Maybe it's called Jerusalem's Juices. And after a late night Sanhedrin meeting, which is the gathering of all the elders of the Jews, a couple of folks have stopped by this wine bar. A few of their sons had joined them for tonight's meeting about Jesus, this new Messiah. And they might say things like this. This might be what their conversation is like. Remember Judas of Galilee just over 30 years ago? Jesus probably wasn't even born yet. Remember how he launched a rebellion against the census and the Roman tax because of how idolatrous it was and is? Another elder chimes in. Ah, uh, Judas of Galilee. I knew his family. He was a good boy. But lots of people died. They shake their heads and drink. Someone breaks the silence. Remember Judas Mac- Maccabeus? Oh, yeah, at least that Judas and his brothers gave us a generation of liberty. A rabbi interrupts, laughing. What's with so many Jewish mothers naming their sons Judas and those Judases always being famous in our history at key political points? Foreshadowing. A son chimes in, which one was that Judas again, Dad? Judas and his brothers, the Maccabeans, Our elders thought that they were the ones to usher in God's kingdom. A hundred years before Rome took power over us, they were the ones who freed our people for a century from the terrible clutches of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, even the mention of the name sent chills through the room. Antiochus, the man who had tried to break them by breaking their laws and forbidding observance of its commandments. Antiochus, who had punished Jewish mothers for circumcising their sons by cutting their baby boys in half and making those mothers walk around Jerusalem with their dead boys strewn around their necks before tossing those women over the city walls. Antiochus, the abomination who had slaughtered pigs in Yahweh's temple, defiled Yahweh's altar, forced their elders to eat unclean foods with unclean hands, and break the Sabbath. One man breaks the silence. God's laws are what have continued to keep us. You know, I don't know what this Jesus kid thinks he's doing, breaking and bending God's laws. Everyone murmurs in agreement, and after a moment one says, I mean, I understand his zeal. He just hasn't thought things through. Young people, am I right? Another cuts him off, sorry, man, we can't be lenient on this guy. He's just an insurrectionist. If him and his disciples want to die, let them die. But they're a danger to our society. He's going to get us killed and worse. We need to figure out a way to deal with him. I heard the chief priests and scribes and some of the other elders today had no luck with him. And the people are getting out of hand. Don't worry. Our best have devised a way to stop him tomorrow before he gets us all in terrible trouble. So this is our scripture for this morning, Mark 12. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were looking for a way to arrest Jesus, but feared the crowd because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, We know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesars, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. In the rest of our time this morning, I want to show you four things that we learn from this passage about the politics of Jesus Messiah and what it means to live in allegiance to Jesus. One thing that must be surrendered one thing that can be done, one thing that we must do, and one thing it will probably mean for us. First, one thing that must be surrendered. You see, this was the perfect trap to trap Jesus. If Jesus says that they don't have to pay the tax, the Herodians can instantly arrest Him, and with good reason, because they exist as a Roman district. Not obeying the law meant that a legion of Roman soldiers would come and crack down on whoever was inciting insurrection against the emperor. So the other option then is to say, yes, we should pay an unjust tax to Rome. But that would mean that Jesus would disappoint all the people who were hoping in him to be the final Moses, to be like his namesake, Joshua, to be David. So when Jesus says this, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you would have felt the whole room change. It's about the most unpopular thing you could say and would guarantee that any political movement that you're trying to build, you would lose all momentum. After Jesus said this, people would have instantly left. I can't believe he said that. Just another politician. We should cancel him. But this is the thing, people would have left because Jesus was exposing something that was already true. They were all already complicit. The fact that they had a denarian on them or that the Romans hadn't already cracked down on them and seized Jerusalem meant that the tax was already being paid. They were all rendering to Caesar what was Caesar's and there was no getting around it. What Jesus does with his first statement is simply expose the truth, exposing their complicity and calling people to surrender any false pretenses of purity. You know, I was writing a paper for my public theology class two weeks ago about climate change, and it felt great. I called out the US government in my own brain and on my own computer, it doesn't go in anybody else, about how the US was the one nation who did not sign onto the Kyoto Protocol in 1997 and 98. The US Senate unanimously refused to reduce carbon emissions because the Kyoto Protocol didn't require developing countries who have extremely low carbon emissions to reduce their emissions. The Bush administration said that this protocol was unfair to American business, the most powerful businesses in the world. And therefore, he could not commit America to reducing carbon emissions by 5%. I think that's pretty ridiculous. And it felt so good to call out the U.S. government in the past in my own brain and on my computer. But then I read this line in my research that stopped me. And it felt how I imagine it would have felt to listen to Jesus say, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This is the line. Perhaps climate change is the great slave rebellion of the earth against humanity. Perhaps climate change is the great slave rebellion of the earth against humanity. And it's true, it makes me complicit. You know, all humans alive right now, we are guilty in contributing to Climate change merely by existing. I drove my car here this morning. It was too far to walk. The reality is that we are all complicit. I participate, we participate in an an economy that is so ungodly that I don't even know who I'm harming when I pick up my favorite cup of coffee. We can't be pure. Jesus' words regarding what is Caesar's could maybe be translated to us today to say, you're a US citizen, we are residents of LA County, which means that whether you like it or not, we benefit from government and land that required the violent seizure and dispossession of Tongva, Keech, and Chumash tribes and their ways of life on this land before. And that we can go on about our lives without even really ever knowing or thinking about them. Giving our allegiance to Jesus means surrendering our false pretensions around purity because it admits that we are all complicit. Do we want to be? No, definitely not. I don't think any of us want to be. Does it open us up to be canceled or disregarded? Sure, but is it true? Allegiance to Jesus is to live in the truth that to be human after Adam is to be impossibly sullied by the systems that have enslaved the earth, many creatures, and many other peoples. As if that wasn't bad or hard enough, Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus didn't stop at... Do you have a denarian from the emperor? He goes further and says, give some of what you have back to Caesar. It's not enough to note that you are sullied by passively benefiting from a broken system, but it's a call to somehow continue to participate in that system. Can you hear how ridiculous it would sound? If I'm to translate it again for us to today, it would be like Jesus saying to the First Nation tribes of this land today, give to LA what is LA's. Pay taxes to the government that has destroyed most of your ways of life and memory. It's insane. How can Jesus say this? The politics of Jesus goes beyond surrendering our false pretenses of purity and calls us to actually participate in these systems. You can see how this was the perfect trap that the Pharisees and Herodians had laid for him. The zealots would have been like, peace Jesus, you're sick with internalized self-hatred, rooted in Roman supremacy, good luck with that. So what does this mean? I think that this means that we can affirm that even from broken and bad systems, good things can come from them and be done with them, that those who have given their allegiance to this Messiah can't just become sectarian and withdraw and pretend that we can be holy somewhere else. That place doesn't exist. I think this means that God somehow still provides through these broken systems. Think of Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah calls the Jewish people in forced exile to seek the peace and prosperity of the city of their oppressors because he knew that their flourishing was a derivative flourishing of the city that they lived in. It was dependent on Babylon flourishing. But further, I think this call to participate, to partner, means to continue to affirm that the powers and principalities do not and should not have the final say. I think there's some genius here that Dr. King and his nonviolent army taps into when they refuse to let the evil of racism claim their souls by making them hate. It was a call to continue to engage in, to participate in, to continue to work, to see the good be the good, even though it meant in some ways propping up a bad system, a broken system that continues to deal death. To pledge allegiance to the politics of Jesus means to continue to work in the midst of those that maybe our people deem enemies. Because we know that at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, enemies can become friends. At this point in my sermon, you might be feeling uncomfortable. I don't blame you if you do. And I want to note that what I've said so far probably doesn't apply for some of you. For some of you, you can't stay in the system that's toxic to your life and to your body. And you should probably leave and that that would be faithfulness to Jesus. And this is the next point that's the clearest and most for you that there's one thing that we must all do. Jesus didn't stop at give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If he did, there wouldn't be a sermon to give. He follows these words up immediately with, and give to God what is God's. And at this point, the Pharisees and the Herodians walk away utterly amazed. That phrase, utterly amazed, happens one time in the whole New Testament, and it happens here. So, what exactly is going on? Why are they so amazed? Let me get that slide back up of the coin. Jesus asks, whose image and inscription is this? Or in other words, whose icon and epigraph is this? And this is what it says. Tiberius Caesar, divine son of God, Augustine, the high priest. This coin belongs to Caesar, clearly. You can also see why Judas of Galilee 30 years ago had started a revolt against having to use this coin to pay taxes. It rubs against all Jewish sensibility because it's an idolatrous coin. To pay the tax, you had to acquiesce to the claim that the Roman emperor was divine and a high priest. But this is the genius of Jesus' response. This is why the Pharisees and the Herodians walk away utterly amazed. You see, they came to try to trap Jesus and indict him. But they walked away having to figure out what it really means to owe God their allegiance. What do I mean? You'll remember that in the beginning, in Genesis, God creates humankind in God's own image. It's the same word here in the Greek version of the Old Testament, icon. Humanity is made by God as many icons of God in God's likeness. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Sure, this is an idolatrous coin. It clearly belongs to the economy of Caesar that deals all kinds of death to our people. But we can't help but utilize it and we should engage it for good. But here, there is a greater law, a more ancient truth than the legions of Caesar can only try to enforce but has no ultimate supreme power over. And that is this, that the Creator God has made every single human in God's own image, and that we are free first to serve God, and then the others. Let me just give you a a small example of what that might look like, a super micro example. I have a friend, her name is Leanne, and she's pretty amazing. She's a black woman, and her dad is was a part of the U.S. military. So she's you know, disciplined and follows everything. She's the kind of person who knows what is true and what is false, what is wickedness and what is goodness. One of those friends that you're like, I don't know, you're always going to be ten times holier than me. So there's this one night when she was a child uh, where she's really tired. And yet it's her night to do the dishes. And She just feels like she can't do them. She has either the enough energy to go do the dishes or she has the energy to go and pray. As I told you, one of those friends that's ten times holier than us. So she goes and she prays in her room. And her dad comes and knocks on her door and says, you know it's your turn to do the chores. And I laugh when I think about this because when she tells me this story, she says that she responded, um... Human, who do you think you are? To her father, a military man. I am talking to God. I was like, what audacity? What freedom? That's the kind of audacity that comes with this statement. Give to God what is God's. You are icons of God. You are free. You know, sometimes I think that um, we've been taught to defend the faith, to defend Christianity or to defend God or Jesus, and while those intentions are good, I think that there's two errors that we commit when we do that. The first is that we think that God needs our defending. We somehow have in our mind that God's super flimsy, you know, like we got to make sure we defend God's goodness. That's not true, God doesn't need our defense. But secondly, what's even worse when we try to defend God is that we've actually lowered God to be on the same level as other powers. God isn't in a squabble for land. God isn't in a squabble for, you know, where his jurisdiction is. The whole cosmos belongs to God. And we are icons of this God. We need to recognize that we have ultimate freedom because our first and foremost vocation is as icons, as priests of God the Creator. Our job is to image God before any other responsibility. So what does that mean, you might ask? And this is the third point that we must learn, is that we must discern. Friends, you might think that it's odd that both Tiberius and Jesus, a weird coincidence that they're both called divine son of God. It's no coincidence. The Gospels are political documents because they announce the good news, the Evangelion, that there was another political power that had come, and it was a good one, not like any of the others finally God was establishing God's rule once again and God was going to let humans know what it looks like to be co-regents in God's kingdom. We see this when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray starting with, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus is not teaching his disciples to pray, oh sugar daddy, up in the sky. No, he's teaching them that they aren't just subjects of the Roman emperor. That's not the person who has all power, but that they themselves, that we are sons and daughters of God, of the divine, which means that we have power, that we need to figure out how to steward, and that we have freedom. The question, of course, then, is that we have to ask together, I think, in community to prevent us from going way off the rails is how are we supposed to exercise that rule in that vocation? And that's why I think we come week after week to hear the story of Jesus, who we've pledged our allegiances to. What does allegiance to Jesus look like for how we use our freedom and our power? That's what requires discernment. The genius of Jesus' response is that everybody who hears this teaching must go away and discern what it means to fulfill this vocation of being divinely made in the image of God, of what it means to steward our power. You know, I was prepping this passage, and I was like, oh, thank God. If Jesus doesn't tell his audience how to do that, I don't have to tell you all how to do that. And you should be suspicious, probably, of people who try to tell you, like, this is exactly how you should live, because I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what it means to be an actor, a musician. I forget what it means to be a university student. I don't know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Our allegiance is the first to first the creator of the world, and then to figure out that how that informs all of our responsibilities as citizens of this world. So we will need to spend our lives growing wise, discerning, and trying out what it means to live like God. When does giving to God, what is God's, mean I also participate in the structures of my company? When do I say, oh, these gifts, these products we are creating are actually really good, and maybe these I can't really, I can't say they're good because they're not. When does it mean that we support something? When does it mean that we abandon it or work against the systems of the world or call for it to be completely abolished? That's the genius at the end. This is why the Herodians and the Pharisees walk away utterly amazed because Jesus is saying to everybody gathered in that space, you're made in the image of God. You have to figure it out. You know, we got some principles that we learn from the witness of the people of God throughout the Bible and throughout history that we can help and give here at church. But ultimately, it means empowering us to be citizens in this world. Being made in the likeness of God means that you and I are free. Free to discern. It means that we have agency. And sometimes I think, and maybe this may just be for me, but I think that for Asian Americans, it's really hard. And again, maybe this is just me, but I kind of like being told what to do. I hate improvising. I remember I was a kid in youth group at church. You know, I had learned piano, how to play classical music for like 10 years. And then I got to church and they were like, you know, here's some chords, make up the rest. I was like, what, you have gotta be kidding me. Where where are the notes? What am I supposed to play? But that's what it means to be made in the image of God. It means that we have to discern. It means that we're free. It means we get to imagine new possibilities and and try them out. It means that we're probably going to fail at our vocation too, and that's okay. I think in part it's really hard because for so many of us, survival and belonging has meant assimilation. It has meant figuring out where the rules are and bending to them so we fit in. Whether that's fitting into the racial schema that we're assigned in this country or fitting into our jobs' expectations, we hope that they're clear, or maybe our parents' expectations and we won't be disowned. Even if we protest being the model minority and say that that is a myth, I think a lot of us still live a model minority kind of spirituality as we obey the rules that we think govern the faith community, this faith community that we belong to. And I get it. In our bodies, we carry the trauma of our parents and our grandparents of what it meant to not belong. Our bodies have kept the score of being forever foreign, of being both hyper-visible and invisible. And while we may mitigate the violence that we attract, there is a chipping away at the freedom that comes from being made in the image of God. You know, a few days ago, I was walking around the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and there's this really, it's a three-mile walk, and the last mile, there's this really beautiful field I always love biking around there because you know even during the pandemic, just being outside and then seeing like people play soccer, seeing kids play, you know, seeing people play ultimate frisbee or like have their dogs out for dates, um, is just really wonderful. And when I was there walking around, the sun was setting, there was nobody there for some reason, and I thought to myself, man, it'd be really nice to w- walk across this field. But instantly, you know what I thought? My mind went to, oh well, I'm not really an anth- athlete. Uh, I'm not signed up to play a sport here. I don't have a dog with me or a child. Am I allowed to walk across this grass? Isn't that so crazy? I have made a life of fitting into all these laws of the land that I don't know what it means to be free, made in the image of God. But since I was thinking about this passage, I was like, you know what? I'm going to walk across this field. And it was great. For a glorious ten minutes, I walked on the soft grass of the earth, and I reminded myself, I belong on this good earth. We are created in the image of God. This is our home. Now, that's just a small example, I think, of what it means to try to discern the freedom that comes from being an icon of God. But I hope that it inspires you so that you get to discover what it means over a lifetime to be an icon of God as a doctor or teacher or artist. Our lives in this world, they matter. It's where we work out owing our allegiance to Jesus. Our vocations, our jobs, is the primary way that we worship God. I love gathering here. I love singing songs together. I've missed it so much I get teary when we sing. But the real worship doesn't happen in here. Here we learn the story, the melody of the gospel. Out there, that's where we get to improvise and make music. That's what we have to do. That's what freedom is like. Out there, we discern what it means to perform the song of the King Jesus in the midst of a world ruled by pharaohs and Caesars. In all of these things, surrendering our purity, admitting our complicity, participating in our imperfect systems, and discerning how to practice our God given freedom and power, there is one last thing that this will probably mean. You know, while the Pharisees and Herodians left that day utterly amazed, we know that the end of the story doesn't end that way. Ultimately, they found a way to kill Jesus because Jesus and his politics were too much of a risk for their community. And Jesus hung on a Roman cross and was labeled a traitor, hanging with what Luke's gospel tells us are insurrectionists to his left and his right. The good news and the bad news is that Caesar and God's kingdoms don't completely overlap. Thank God. And help us, Lord. There is a Venn diagram that we need to discern where we can engage and where we must oppose. And as we discern what our allegiance to the creator of the earth actually means in our daily lives, we will probably find that the time will come when the call is for us to become a traitor. A traitor to Caesar, treacherous, resistant, and disobedient to the powers and the laws that pillage the earth and disobey God's commandments. But in that place, we will find ourselves in good company with the saints who have gone before us, who lived and loved this world as our Lord and Savior did to their deaths. And so I wanna close by just introducing you to just such an icon, who is trying, who's improvising, who's discerning, and who is still walking this earth with us trying to live out her vocation. I'm gonna read now from a newspaper article um, about Representative Barbara Lee. Representative Barbara Lee agonized over her vote, she said later, until that morning when the California Democrat listened to the prayer of one of the country's most prominent clergymen. It was three days after 9-11, 2001. And like nearly every other member of Congress, she was attending a memorial service at Washington National Cathedral. In his opening invocation, the dean of the cathedral, the Reverend Nathan Baxter said, let us also pray for divine wisdom as our leaders consider the necessary actions for national security. Wisdom of the grace of God that as we act, we not become the evil that we deplore. When she quoted him on the House floor later that day to explain her vote against giving the president a broad open-ended authorization for military force, she was called a terrorist, a traitor, And close to treasonous. The House vote was 420 to 1. The Senate vote was 98 to 0. Lee spent weeks explaining her vote in op-eds and interviews. She wasn't a pacifist, she said, and she wasn't against President George W. Bush responding to the terrorist attacks with military force. But she thought that it was an abdication of Congress's power to declare war, and she didn't want to give a president a blank check to start a war with no fixed goal or end date. Over the decades, Lee has not wavered, repeatedly introducing legislation to repeal the 2001 authorization. The repeal passed the House in June 2019 as part of an appropriations bill, but did not pass the Senate. So in June of this year, Lee sponsored a bill to repeal a similar authorization used to greenlight the war in Iraq, and it finally passed the House in a bipartisan vote. Let us pray. Jesus, you are the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. You still rule today and are on the throne of heaven. We remember this day our earthly leaders who meet in Rome and in the UK. Fill them with your spirit as they are all made in your image. Give them the courage to admit the ugly truths about our nations and our economies, our corporations, and fill them, God, with the imagination to work creatively towards your peace prick their hearts to subordinate their own interests, even if they are heralded as traitors by their nations, so that all creatures of the earth might live. And might we, God, by your power, discern how to do the same. In your name, O Jesus of Galilee, we pray. Amen.